0: You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hello everybody, my name is David Guzik and I'm very pleased that you could join me for today's YouTube Live session. Uh, what we're doing today is we are on a hour-long program, and I begin with a lead question that comes in over social media or a comment to a YouTube video or some kind of communication with us. And from there, we go on and I uh, take whatever questions come in on the side chat. So welcome to everybody. Our moderator today, Devin, will be fielding and organizing and prioritizing your questions. And I wanna get into right now the lead question which comes to us from a pastor friend in Brazil. He's the pastor of a church called Calvary Curitiba there in Brazil, a city that I have visited before and a pastor that I've met before. So I'm happy here to bring this particular answer to this question, or at least to do the best I can with it. And here's the question, was the pre-tribulation rapture invented only 200 years ago? And again, this comes from a pastor from Brazil. This is what he writes. I'll read his question to you. Uh, He says, I am the new pastor of Calvary Curitiba here in Brazil. How do you deal with or answer when people question the eschatology of pre-tribulationism being a Lacunza or Irving or Darby or Schofield thing from the 1700s or the 1800s? In Brazil... Many people say this doctrine was created by these guys I cited and that it is an American thing. And then he goes on to write, I'm not writing doubting the doctrine, but trying to go deeper and understanding more about this historical reality. Do we have records and anything written from Christians in the first centuries who believed in the rapture like Calvary Chapel believes? Well, I just want to say, uh, Pastor, thank you so much for your question. God bless you and all the people we know doing ministry in Brazil. Brazil is a very beloved country, and we are grateful for the work of the Lord there, and just pray that it would continue more and more as time goes on. But I want you to know that your question is a good one, and it really sort of encapsulates a common attack against doctrine of the pre-tribulation rapture. Now, I got to go on record. I almost feel guilty speaking about this on our YouTube live question and answer time, because if you don't have a background with some of these doctrines, it can all seem very confusing. And I'm not saying that just about my particular understanding about end times events or eschatology. I mean, any understanding of end times events or eschatology will seem confusing if you don't have some background with it. So in my answer to this question, I'm gonna use a lot of terms without really defining them. So if you're confused by all that, don't feel bad. If you're interested, take the time to look up these words or the terms that you're unfamiliar with and then to think through all of this. Now, let me start with basics. When it comes to the second coming of Jesus, All Christians agree or should agree on this. When I say all Christians, I mean all Christians, from every denomination, from every background. Anybody who truly names the name of Jesus Christ and is a disciple on him agrees on this or should agree on it. Number one, both the Old Testament and Jesus promised that Jesus would rule on this earth. Okay? That's understood. Jesus Christ is promised to rule on this earth. That's number one. Number two, Jesus Christ is coming again. Now, those are two things that every Christian should be able to agree upon. Beyond those two points of agreement, there's a lot of disagreement among Christians. They ask the questions, when is this reign of Jesus? What is the nature of this reign of Jesus? What is the nature of his return when it says he's coming again? What will the world be like when Jesus does come again? These are some of the things that Christians disagree on. I think that's fine. I think that Christians should read their Bibles, study hard, and think through these things the very best that they can. And when we do disagree, I think it's important to do so with a spirit of mutual respect. Now, as for me, I believe in, and here I'm going to start throwing out terminology again. If you don't understand my terminology, don't feel guilty. I'm not going to take the time to explain it, uh, but but look up these terms. But I believe in the premillennial, pre-tribulational understanding of eschatology, that is things having to do with the last days or the end times. H- however, I would say this to my all-millennial and my post-millennial brothers and sisters, I love you, I respect you. I think I understand why you believe differently than I do, but I don't agree with you. I, I think you're wrong and I think I'm right on this. Well, wh- why would I knowingly hold to a doctrinal belief that I thought was wrong? So. But again, I love you. I respect you. And I think I understand how you came to your conclusions. I say to my mid-trib, pre-wrath, post-trib, and no rapture brothers and sisters, I love you. I respect you. I think I understand why you believe differently than I do. But again, I don't agree with you on those particular points. Now, these disagreements are not always held with a spirit of mutual respect. More than once, I've had someone treat me as stupid or deceived or unspiritual because I don't believe what they believe in these areas. I've even been accused of doing the work of the Antichrist because I believe in the pre-tribulation catching up of the church. Now, Look, I try not to get offended at such things. After all, who am I? But when someone acts as if only a stupid person would believe in the pre-tribulation catching up of the church, I remember men uh, that I've read a lot of. Donald Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, John Walvoord, John MacArthur. Look, Look, I guess what I'm saying is maybe I don't know very much But I don't think you can rightfully accuse those men as being stupid. And they largely hold to the same understanding of end times events as I do. Now, back to the question from our friend in Brazil. What do we make of this accusation that the teaching of the pre-tribulation rapture is a novelty that no one taught it or believed it before the 19th century? The idea that this is the invention of a Jesuit priest named Lacunza, or a crazy woman named Margaret MacDonald, or other weird teachers like John Nelson Darby and C.I. Schofield. All right, what about that? I respond with five points here. Number one, fasten your seatbelts. In some sense, the accusation is true. Uh, let me explain. It is true that there was not much specific interest before the 19th century in the catching up of the church as it's described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let let me show you these verses. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 16 and 17, we read this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now, it is absolutely true that in the 19th century, a man named John Nelson Darby was an early explainer of this idea that the catching up of the church was some seven years before the glorious return of Jesus with his church. And it is true that in the 20th century, the Schofield Reference Bible had a big influence in spreading this idea. That's true as well. But we need to see the difference between a doctrine being focused on and dealt with by the church and a doctrine being invented by the church. Listen, brothers and sisters, if it's in the Bible, it wasn't invented by any of those people. It was declared by God in his word. But we should just be honest in the historical record. These matters were not given great attention, great prominence, great explanation until the 19th century, and some of those men mentioned were people responsible for popularizing these views. Okay, that's point number one. Number two, in a greater sense, so I said there's a sense in which the accusation is true, but number two, in a greater sense, the accusation is irrelevant, if it is in the Bible, it goes back to the origin of Christianity. Now, look, if you are a Roman Catholic, or if you belong to one of the Orthodox communions, then I understand why you let tradition decide what the Bible teaches. But as Protestants, we're supposed to be different. Our first measure is never what do others say? Our first measure is always, what does the Bible say? Now, I do need to say that it is foolish to ignore or disregard traditional Christian teachings on many things. We need to be thoughtful and respectful regarding what our Christian brothers and sisters have taught in the past. But, but at the end of the day, We believe what the Bible says, and we don't interpret the Bible by democratic vote. We don't interpret the Bible by democratic vote of a particular congregation, of a particular age, of a particular generation. We don't go through history and say whatever most Christians have believed through history is always the right interpretation. I don't need to go into it, but to think this way would invite all sorts of errors. Now, when it comes to eschatology, most Christians throughout history have been all-millennial or postmillennial, not pre-millennial. Now, I kind of say that because this whole debate about the catching up of the church and where it appears in uh regard to this seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation. Th- that is a discussion only relevant among those who are pre-millennial. Well, well, listen, if you think that the way to decide doctrine is to take a look at what the majority has believed throughout church history, then you're not going to be pre-millennial at all. You'll be amillennial or post-millennial. Most Christians throughout history have believed in or approved of all sorts of doctrines, many of my audience wouldn't agree with today, the veneration of Mary, the mother of Jesus, the practice of infant baptism, the institution of the state church. Those things have been the majority opinion throughout most of Christian history. And majority opinion doesn't make any of those things true. It doesn't make any of those things right. Look, either we believe in sola scriptura, or we don't. So, in one sense, the accusation is true. In another sense, a greater sense, the accusation is irrelevant because we look to the Bible first. Point number three, key foundations to the pre-tribulation rapture idea are found scattered in church history. Now, I don't have any problem saying that the developed doctrine of the pre-tribulation catching up of the church was not recorded or popularized until the 19th century. But but I also want to note that that doctrine is built upon foundations that are spoken of often and early in the history of the church. One of these is the simple idea of imminence. In other words, the idea that Jesus Christ is coming soon, and that his people should be ready for his coming. When you look at the New Testament, the idea of imminence goes far beyond the thinking, hey, I could die today and go see Jesus. No, the idea of imminence in the New Testament and in early church history is not just the knowledge that I could die today. It is the active anticipation of the soon return of Jesus Christ and the determination to watch and be ready for that return. Now, among premillennialists, this idea of imminence only fits in with the pre-tribulation catching up concept. And to make quick mention, there are references in ancient writers, uh, such as the Shepherd of Hermas, Victorinus, and others that are quite consistent with the pre-tribulation catching up idea. We shouldn't exaggerate this. I'm not trying to imply for a moment that they fully explained the idea, but they and others spoke in ways that were consistent with this idea. Matter of fact, a paper that I read last night mentioned references to the rapture consistent with the pre-tribulation concept in the teaching of the Twelve Apostles, that's the mid-2nd century, Irenaeus, the late 2nd century, and pseudo ephraim perhaps the early 4th century. Again, what I mentioned before as the Shepherd of Hermas, dating perhaps to 90 AD, uh, Victorinus in the 2nd century, and others. Now, I'll put up some of these quotes in the show notes, along with an article by Thomas Ice titled, why the doctrine of the pre-tribulation rapture did not begin with Margaret MacDonald. So again, that's something you to look up. I'll put the link in the show notes. Okay, that's number three. Number four, and this one's very important, there is a pattern and flow to doctrinal development in church history. You see, I said before, that we need to see the difference between a doctrine being focused on and being dealt with by the church and a doctrine being invented by the church. For example, the church did not invent the doctrine of the Trinity. It's clearly in the Bible. But it wasn't given full thought and form until the 3rd and 4th centuries. When we look at church history, we see that God has successfully had, successively, I should say, successfully also, but successively had the church focus on specific areas of doctrine at different periods. And our present understanding of many areas of biblical teaching were only most carefully and precisely defined after God appointed the church to focus on that doctrinal area. So in the second through the fourth centuries, The church is focused on the doctrine of scripture, bibliology, if you want to say that. In the fourth century, the church focused on the doctrine of God. You could say the Trinity. In the fifth century, the church focused on the doctrine of Christ. In the fifth through the seventh centuries, the doctrine of man. In the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries, the doctrine of salvation. In the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries, the doctrine of the church. And in the nineteenth and twentieth centuries, the doctrines of last things and Christ's return, otherwise known as eschatology. So therefore, we should not be surprised that as God had the church focus on the area of doctrine successively through its history, that towards the end of all things, the doctrine of last things and Christ's returns is focused on in the 19th and 20th centuries that there arose great clarity from the scriptures and new understanding of apostolic teachings that had not changed since the apostles wrote these things. Okay, that's number four. Finally, let me give you my fifth point, number five. Ultimately, I need to say this straightforwardly, this argument about the pre-tribulation rapture idea being a recent thing. Ultimately, This is the sign of a weak argument. It is not looking first to Scripture. Now, there is a case to be made for different ideas about the end times, uh, ideas that are different from what I believe. But those cases should be made from the Scriptures, not primarily from church history. And when I see people lead with the accusation, well, this is a new teaching from the 19th century. It makes me think their biblical arguments must be pretty weak. Again, I'm not saying that there is no place to discuss this in the history of theology. No, there is a place to discuss this. But that place is far, far behind whatever biblical arguments can be made and should be made. You know, to be honest, it's kind of like whenever I hear somebody use that phrase, secret rapture. It's something of a derisive term for the pre-tribulation catching up of the church. Personally, I've never heard a pre-trib teacher use that phrase, secret rapture. But opponents on the pre-trib doctrine of the pre-trib doctrine, they have it on the tip of their tongue. They like to use it because they think it makes the pre-trib idea sound ridiculous. So their use of the term secret rapture, honestly, it tells me more about them And the strength, or maybe I should say the weakness of their arguments, than it does about their favored end times scenario. Okay, so let me conclude. I've gone long enough with this, but let me conclude with this. What do we make of this accusation that the teaching of the pre tribulation rapture is a novelty, that no one taught it or believed it before the 19th century? What what do we make of the accusation that it is the invention of a Jesuit priest or a crazy woman or some other crazy teachers? Well, this is just what we would say. Number one, in some sense, the accusation is true. Number two, in a greater sense, the accusation is irrelevant. If it is in the Bible, it goes back to the origin of Christianity. Number three, key foundations to the pre-tribulation rapture idea are found scattered in church history all the way back to the beginning. Number four, There is a pattern and a flow to doctrinal development in Christian history. And then number five, ultimately, this is the sign of a weak argument, not looking first to the scriptures. I'll say this. Every prophetic perspective regarding the millennium, regarding the tribulation, regarding the catching away, every prophetic perspective has its proof passages and its problem passages. Every standpoint has difficulties to deal with. Now, I believe in what's known as the premillennial perspective, and I believe in the pre tribulation catching up of the church, but I don't believe it because there's absolutely no problems with that approach. I believe it because after studying all the different approaches, honestly, I prefer the difficulties in those approaches than in all the other ones. So, God bless you, my dear pastor friend from Curitiba, Brazil. I'm glad you could join us. And we'll take a look now at some of the questions that come in uh, from the side chat. Um, First of all, uh, we get a question from Jordan who says... Why would God bring the Jews into seven years of the worst time in humankind before they repent? Well, Jordan, you know, your question is why? I I can give you reasons why. I can give you reasons based on the result of that time. Uh, Ultimately, the reasons are known to God. I I I don't teach that because we just absolutely know that the Bible teaches it uh, because uh, we know all the reasons for it. We believe it because the Bible clearly teaches it. Look, I can speculate on some of the reasons, especially because of the result that we see of these things. Here's some of the results. Number one, Israel comes to faith in Jesus Christ as their Messiah. You see, this is a very interesting phenomenon here, how at the very um, agony of Israel in the Great Tribulation, that period of time that the prophets call the time of Jacob's trouble. In that period, they come to faith in Jesus as their Messiah. No doubt, uh, some of their affliction in that time drives them to it. There's another aspect to it as well that God made a covenant with Israel in uh, the Sinai desert, that they would be blessed for their obedience and cursed for their disobedience. There's some sense that uh, they are reaping some of what they sow in this period, and that reaping drives them to Jesus Christ and to trust in him as the Messiah. And then I can give you a third reason why it's simply because Satan hates, hates the Jewish people and wants to eliminate them because they have a remaining role in God's unfolding plan of the ages. So honestly, Jordan, I mean, I could speculate with you on reasons and I think so, but really the scriptures are more clear on the fact of this happening than giving us all the reasons for it. And uh, we just have to understand that this is what the scriptures say is going to happen. Okay. Next, a question from Nathan asks, Uh, will the Bible be banned during the tribulation? Nathan, I I would just want to explain that uh, the Bible simply doesn't give us enough information to say that. Uh, No doubt uh, the scriptures will be attacked and persecuted, and as in previous times of persecution, there will be, be people who want to destroy the scriptures and such, but we just don't have any specific chapter or verse that I'm aware of, Maybe somebody can enlighten me. I'm happy to hear it. But we don't have any specific chapter or verse that tells us that this will be the case. So um, I I would just simply say we don't have that evidence. And I would say one of the blessings there, there are a lot of curses to our modern technological age, no doubt. But one of the blessings of it is that the scriptures can be distributed in so many formats, in so many ways that it would be virtually now impossible to destroy every digital copy of the scriptures on every thumb drive or whatever. So, uh, yeah, we just don't know enough to say that. Next question comes from Donald. He says, uh, hello, David, do you think a Christian is better off because of Adam's sin? If yes, why? If no, why not? Okay. Donald, in some sense, with this question, you're asking something near and dear to my heart. Is a Christian better off because of Adam's sin? And if I could say big picture, big picture, not considering only time, but eternity as well, big picture, yes, the believer is better off. This is why I'd like you to remember this phrase. This is a phrase I think is very important to understanding God's great plan of the ages. Here's the phrase. We gain more in Jesus than we lost in Adam. In other words, what God is doing through the person and work of Jesus Christ is not to lift his people up to the same level that Adam was before the fall. No, it's to lift his people up to a place that's even greater. God's work of redemption is greater than his original work of creation. Or I'll give it to you another way to say it. We can say that we gain more in Jesus than we lost in Adam. We can say God's work of, of, of uh, God's is bringing us back to something greater than man originally created. We can also put it this way that God's work of redemption is greater than his work of creation, that redeemed man is greater than innocent man. Now, for those reasons, uh, that we are made kings and priests, Adam was never described in such terms. uh, We will never have the possibility of falling away and having eternal future secure with Jesus Christ. That wasn't true of Adam. Uh, We will live in a world in eternity with no temptation. That's greater than something Adam ever had. I mean, I could go on and on, but what we gain in Jesus is greater than what we lost in Adam. So to answer that, just sort of simply, Donald, I would say this, that a Christian is better off because of Adam's sin. And that's simply what we have to reckon with and accept. Yes, this is God's plan, and this is God's unfolding plan. So thank you for that question there, Donald. Um, Let me say as we go on, I do want to apologize uh, to our viewers who are having trouble with the buffering issues uh, on our video. I have to admit it's a little bit of a mystery. Uh, We knew that we had some of these problems last week in our live question and answer program. And uh, I did what I could, hoping to remedy it. And it appears that it really isn't remedied all that much. Uh, We want to do everything we can to give you a seamless viewing experience. And it just doesn't seem to be happening right now. So we'll do the best we can. All right, going on. A question from Andrea says, "Uh, we've often heard that we're in the last days. I constantly hear that every year. Why do people say that, but in reality, few days go by and the rapture has not yet come? Well, Andrea, I'll give you a perspective on this. I'll be honest with you. I don't know that this is a satisfactory answer to you, but uh, it's the answer I would give. Nevertheless, Andrea, I believe that God intends for his people to live in a state of anticipation of his return. I do not believe that God wants Christians to live with the attitude that our Lord delays his coming, that there's really nothing that we have to think about or worry about regarding the return of Jesus Christ. No, God wants us to live with the earnest, serious expectation of the return of Jesus Christ. Therefore, I believe that God has given Every generation, some reason to believe that Jesus Christ is coming soon. You see it throughout church history. I don't know if you're aware of this, but during the time or the days of the Reformation, uh, Martin Luther himself, Martin Luther had a very high expectation of the soon return of Jesus Christ. Now, was he wrong in that? Well, okay, you could say he was wrong because Jesus didn't return in his lifetime or soon afterwards, But you could also say no he wasn't wrong because god wanted him to live in that anticipation andrea or andrea don't know how to pronounce your name but i would just say this it's important for us to understand god wants us to live in the anticipation of the soon return of jesus christ this is a healthy and a purifying thing the first church Paul the Apostle, Peter in his writings, they lived with this anticipation of the soon return of Jesus Christ. And I'm not going to stand back now, 2,000 years later, and say they were wrong. No, they weren't wrong. They were right because they had the mentality that God wanted them to have, and it had a good effect in their life that God wanted them to have. Now, I know that there are people who, well, you know, when I was a kid in the 1970s, which is true— When I was a kid in the 1970s, everybody was talking about the rapture and it didn't happen then. I guess it's never going to happen. No, that's the wrong way to think. The right way to think is this. We thought that Jesus Christ is coming soon in the 1970s. We can believe that it's all the more likely that he's coming soon now, 40 years later. Do you understand the difference there? We have this wonderful, 50 years later, we have this uh, anticipation of the soon return of Jesus Christ that is not something bad. It's something good for us to have that. So let me go on to the next question here from Luciana. Do you believe that God created the earth in six literal days, one day with 24 hours? Well, Luciana, yes, that's what I believe. I believe God created the earth in six literal days, one day being 24 hours or approximately however exact you want to get. Now, I do believe that that is the most clear explanation of the Bible's teaching. If you just want to go for clarity, straightforwardness, I believe that that's it. That is the most clear explanation of the Bible's teaching. Uh, However, I don't think that the Bible is so clear on this issue that I can excommunicate or call heretical those who believe in what you might call an old earth. There's a difference between the two. So I do believe I am somebody who is uh, in favor of more what's called the young earth conception, believing that God did, and the reason why... I believe that that is the most straightforward way to understand what the Bible says. However, as I said before, I don't believe the Bible is so clear on the matter that I can excommunicate or call heretical somebody who believes in an older earth. I guess that's the most straightforward answer that I could give to you there, Luciana. So we'll wait here for a subsequent question to come. Will I do just a little bit of housekeeping here. Hope you're all doing well there. All right, let me just look here on the side chat and get a question. Donald asks, is it God's will for people to get sick or to suffer? Um, Donald? All right. There are questions that have an immediate answer and an ultimate answer. The immediate answer is yes. It is God's will for people to get sick and suffer. If God did not want a world where people got sick And where people suffered, it is fully within the capability of God to create such a world. Do you understand what I'm saying? The fact that we have a world where people get sick and suffer shows us that God desires this particular world. Now, that's the immediate sense. Ultimately, God is going to resolve all this. There's nobody sick in heaven. There's nobody suffering in heaven. God's ultimate will is to resolve all these things, and he'll do it in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. But in the immediate sense, yes, it is God's will. This is a good way to explain it, at least in this um, uh, sense. The idea is simply this, that we cannot look around us and say that um, this is best possible world. Do you understand what I mean by that? Uh, Any less pain, any less suffering would mean a better world. However, what we can say is this, this is the best possible way to the best possible world. And that's simply how I explain it. All right, let me go on to a couple more questions. Devin has a question. Can you recommend some books or portions of scripture that best explain the order of how the end times are going to happen? Um, Best books on prophecy. You know, a big book, and that's why I'm a little bit hesitant to explain it. But Dwight Pentecost has an excellent book called Things to Come. It's a big book, but it's really good. I would recommend a book by uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum. Uh, His book, Footsteps of the Messiah, is an excellent book speaking about God's prophetic plan. And I'll give you one other book that I think is a great reference on this. Basically, it's anything written by John Walverd. John Walvoord was an excellent Bible commentator and professor, and uh, he's written some wonderful books on prophecy. Uh, so those would be some books I would recommend here. Um, Alvin asks the question, please explain the relationship between being baptized by the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, Alvin, uh, that's a very good question. And It's not easy to give an answer to that because I believe that in some sense, the uh, terminology overlaps. I would not describe the filling of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit as two different things. They're, They're just different. I would rather describe them as things that overlap to some extent. So I hope you understand what I mean by that. Um, When a person is baptized with the Spirit, of course, they're being filled with the Holy Spirit. I do believe that that term, baptism of the Holy Spirit, speaks to a certain degree of experience. Um, The word baptize in the original language of the New Testament basically means to immerse. That's what the word means. To dip under, to be covered over in. When a person is baptized in the Holy Spirit, it's fair enough to say that they are in some sense overflowed with the Holy Spirit. And this overflow uh, really is speaking of an abundant experience. Uh, Jesus alluded to this uh, when he spoke of living waters gushing forth from a person's innermost being. Uh, That's really uh, what what Jesus is speaking about there, this overflow experience. So that's simply how I would say it. Um, I will often speak to people more about the filling of the Holy Spirit than I will about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Not because I'm embarrassed about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I don't like to talk about it. But I know that that terminology is a stumbling block to a lot of people. And oftentimes I think, well, let's just get that stumbling block out of the way. I'll talk to you about the filling of the Holy Spirit. And this is what Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote about the filling of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 5. He said, Be constantly being filled with the Spirit. Uh, he it's in our English translations as be filled with the Spirit, but the, the nuance of the Greek grammar and verb tense is be constantly being filled with the Holy Spirit. Look that speaks of an overflow experience with the Holy Spirit. So really there's overlap. It just speaks of the Holy Spirit's many variated way of working in our life. And um, I I would make some distinction, but not a complete separation between the two. So I hope that's helpful for you there, Alvin. Uh, Denise writes and says, when Jesus comes for his church, the rapture, He doesn't actually come to earth, is how I see the word. I could be wrong, of course. It is right. Shouldn't that be counted as the first, second coming? All right, well, Denise, let me give you my explanation of that. And again, I want to say what I said at the beginning of our hour together. There are Christians who understand this differently. So we just understand that right off the bat. Okay, okay. Christians understand this differently, but my understanding of this is simply that there are two different aspects of the second coming of Jesus Christ. One aspect is a coming for his church. The second aspect is coming with his church. One aspect is Jesus meeting his church in the air and not even coming to earth. The second aspect is Jesus coming with his church to the earth. One aspect comes at a time that is completely unknown. No one will know the day of the hour. The other aspect comes a predetermined number of days after an event known as the abomination of desolation. One aspect comes to a world that's operating business as usual. People saying peace and safety. uh, People are marrying and giving in marriage. The other aspect happens as people are... uh, undergoing what you might say, hell on earth. It's the worst time of all human history. You put all that together, and there are two discernible different aspects of the return of Jesus. Now, when I have taught this or discussed this with people before, sometimes they like to mock because of that. Oh, you don't believe in a second coming. You believe in a second and third coming of Jesus. No, I believe in a second coming. This is what I believe, that there are two aspects to the second coming of Jesus, just as when there were multiple aspects to the first coming of Jesus. I mean, think about it for yourself. When did Jesus come to the earth uh, in his first coming? When? Did he come when he was conceived in Mary's womb by a miracle of the Holy Spirit? Did he come when he was born in Bethlehem? Did he come when he emerged out of Egypt and came back into the land? Did he emerge when he began his public ministry at his baptism? Did Jesus come to the earth and come to Israel when he was presented at the triumphal entry? You see, all of those um, aspects could legitimately be described as arrivals or appearances or coming of Jesus in reference to his first coming. The first coming of Jesus had several different aspects. I have no problem with seeing two significant aspects in the second coming of Jesus. So that's how I explain it. I I don't know how other people regard that answer, but I am totally at peace with that particular answer. Okay, let me continue on here. A question that comes from uh, Indeliato says this, What about dinosaurs and humans living at the same time? Was it possible? Um, And Deliato, I would just say, I suppose it's possible. Um, Perhaps. Uh, I I could probably construct a scenario uh, where men and dinosaurs lived on the earth at the same time and that the dinosaurs perished in the flood or very, very soon after the flood. Uh, when the ecology of the earth was profoundly changed. Uh, This has been the understanding of some great creation science scholars such as Henry Morris and Dr. Dwayne Gish. So, okay, I I get that. I I understand that. But this is kind of the the problem that I have is uh, I'm not an expert in geology, archaeology. I know that a geologist would probably laugh at what I just said there. And I don't don't want to diminish the work that the archaeologist or the geologist does do your work, do your research, investigate it with all your heart. If the findings of a scientist match up with what we see in the Bible, the solution to that is not to tell the scientist, shut up. (laughs) No, it's not to tell the scientist, stop your investigation. The answer to that is to tell the scientist, you keep digging. You keep working on that. You keep doing everything you can to figure out that question. And I am sure that when you understand it in its fullness, it'll be much, much more like what the Bible says. Because I know and I thank God that scientists know a lot. And you could say that scientists know a lot more now than they knew 20 years ago or certainly 200 years ago. I'm grateful for that. But if you were to conceive of the total amount of knowledge in the universe and think how much of that is known and how much of it is unknown. There's a lot more that's not known than is known. So we say to the scientists, even the ones that would doubt the scriptures or whatever, you keep digging, you keep doing your work. And if you do your work honestly, eventually, and it may take decades, may take centuries to uncover enough but it will show that the Bible is true and right in all of its ways. With that understanding, to be honest, uh, I really don't let it bother me that much what these uh, scientists say. I, I try to read, I try to appreciate, I respect them for what they do. But as far as correlating with the Bible, if there appears to be some kind of contradiction, I just say, you keep digging, you keep doing your work, and we'll get to the right answer together, I'm sure of it. Okay, uh, let me continue on here. I can grab another question uh, here from the side chat. Let me come to this. Um, Gray asks a question, David, how do you understand the order of events from the scriptures about the end times, the tribulation, and the rapture? Well, uh, I'll just give you, Gray, uh, the, the basic understanding here of how I understand these things. Uh, I understand them, number one, that uh, the next significant event on God's prophetic calendar is the catching up of the church as described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. That's the next major event. I look around the world today, and I notice that the Bible describes... Uh, a certain kind of um, spiritual environment that's going to happen in the very last days. The book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, uh, uh, the um, Olivet Discourse of Jesus in Matthew chapter 24. There's a certain kind of spiritual environment, a certain kind of political environment, a certain kind of economic environment, a certain kind of cultural or social environment, a certain kind of moral environment. I look at that profile of what the Bible describes, and I look at the world around me and say, we're in it. So I I think that we should anticipate that the coming of Jesus Christ is very soon. How soon? I don't know. And listen, if we believe that Jesus Christ is coming soon, what should we be doing? We should be about our business to the fullest extent. We should be about our father's business and doing everything that we can possibly do to be faithful in the current moment. But I would order the event something like this. Rapture of the church. uh, At that time or very soon afterwards, I can't tell you how soon, uh, this charismatic, successful leader that we often call the Antichrist, though that's not the best name for him biblically, But this charismatic world leader makes a covenant with the Jewish people. Uh, There is a temple rebuilt in Jerusalem. Eventually, this world figure turns on the Jewish people and establishes an image of himself in that temple. Um, This is the abomination of desolation, and that opens the floodgates for God's judgment to come upon the earth. Uh, We often speak of this seven-year period as the Great Tribulation. Technically, only the three and a half years are the times of great agony, globally speaking. There's three and a half years of great catastrophe and wrath and judgment upon the earth, culminating in the glorious return of Jesus Christ at the end of that period. And then at the end of that period, there's a judgment of the nations, and Jesus establishes a kingdom on this earth, that will last forever, but has a specific period on this earth for a thousand years before the final judgment. You can look at the messages that I have done on a series called God's Plan of the Ages. Uh, It's here on my YouTube channel to get a better idea of those things. Okay, let me continue on here. A question from Andrea. There's so much debate on who wrote Hebrews. Many people believe it was Paul, but what do you say according to all of your biblical research? Well, Andrea, or again, Andrea, however you pronounce your name. I I know that the ultimate answer is the Holy Spirit inspired this book. We don't know who wrote it, but I would say this. Um, I would favor the, um, authorship of Apollos for the, uh, book of Hebrews. There are many people who believe that this was a, um, sermon because the book of Hebrews is structured very much like a sermon. It seems like a sermon, by the way, it's an exegetical sermon. It's developing passages of scripture, explaining them, uh, If it is a sermon, some people believe that it was a sermon that Paul would teach in Hebrew, in synagogues, and that Luke translated into Greek. Well, again, that's possible, but maybe it's just because I like the underdog. I want to say that it was Apollos, a man who was eloquent, a man who was an expert with the scriptures, a man who came to a great understanding of Jesus and his work. To me, that seems like a great example of someone who would write, um, The letter to the Hebrews, one of the reasons I don't believe that Paul wrote it, and I'll agree, I I don't believe that this makes it impossible, but I think it makes it definitely less likely that Paul wrote it, is that in Hebrews, I believe in chapter four, it could be in chapter two, in Hebrews, either chapter two or four, Paul speaks, Paul, the author of the letter to the Hebrews speaks as being one who heard the gospel from others. Whereas I find Paul very insistent, especially in Galatians, that he did not receive the gospel from anyone else, but that he received his gospel directly from Jesus Christ. I think that's one of a few things that make it unlikely that Paul wrote it. But again, I don't really think that there's much place to contest the issue. If someone wants to believe it, they can believe it and we can just take it as that comes. All right, let's go on now uh, to our last couple of questions here. Uh, Wibby Fit says, I'm no expert. In fact, I'd like to consider myself an infant in God's eyes. I never asked for the gift of prophecy. Will this gift only grow or can I lose this? Okay, Wibby Fit, I, I must say that there's a lot to your question that really would merit a greater in-depth discussion. So let me just leave you with a principle. Um, In general, God's gifts grow and are strengthened as they are used, as they are, as Hebrews says, exercised. So um, it is the exercise of gifts that you know, makes them stronger and more effective in our life. I say that as a general principle. Maybe if I was sitting down with you face to face, I would have a different counsel with you about this specific issue. But I can just say in general, the gifts grow, so to speak, uh, are strengthened um, as uh, we exercise them. All right. Last couple questions here. Uh, Joyce asks, do you have any advice for older folks who are serving the Lord and are not as able as they were in their younger years." Well, Joyce, I guess I would give two pieces of advice for older brothers and sisters who don't have the same capabilities, maybe not physically, uh, maybe they feel like their minds aren't as sharp, their capabilities aren't as sharp as they used to be. But um, I would give two pieces of advice. One, just look to serve in any way you can. Don't compare yourself with what you used to be able to do. That'll torture you. Look, you're in the place where you are right now. God has his hand on you. There are ways that you can serve the Lord. And even if it would just be in prayer, and I say just in prayer, prayer is a huge thing. But if it would be in prayer, if it would be in, in other ways, there's ways that everybody can serve the Lord. Just don't try, resist the temptation to compare your current capability to serve the Lord with prior capabilities. Again, that'll just drive you crazy. Number one, exercise whatever gifts you can, avoid comparison. And then number three, I would just say this, be grateful. Be be grateful for prior things that the Lord has let you do. You know, I think about this. I think about uh, when I am quite old, if Jesus doesn't come first, which I'm all in favor of, Uh, but if I grow to be very old and find my capacities greatly diminished, I hope that I'll be able to look back on my younger years and say, thank you, Jesus, for what you did in me, for what you did through me to serve you and serve your kingdom. Uh, It was a blessing to do that. So be grateful. So do what you can, don't compare and be grateful. That's what I would say, Joyce, and I hope that's a blessing to you. Hey, finally, for the last question we're going to take today, it'll be a question from Dorcas, who asks, another way to say God, say, is Godfather is uncreated and the son is eternally begotten, not made. How to understand begotten? Dorcas, that is a great question. When the Bible speaks of Jesus being the begotten son of the father or the only begotten, The emphasis is not so much on point of origin as it is on relationship. Now, this is a question that has been uh, active in the history of Christian theology. The idea of the eternal generation of the Son. Is God the Son eternal in the past the same way that God the Father is? I'm not going to get into that debate, but that has been a debate at different times in church history. But to say this, um, the emphasis is not on a point of time of origin. The emphasis is on relation, and we create things different from ourselves. Uh, Someone could create a uh, statue, a little bobblehead here of John Wesley, and somebody could create this and make it very lifelike. I mean, this isn't terribly lifelike, but you can imagine somebody creating something life-size and fully lifelike and say, wow, they created something that looks very much like them. And it's true, but it wouldn't be human. Not at all. It would be of a different order of existence altogether. We create things different from ourselves. We beget things the same as we are. Again, I hope that makes sense to you. <laughs> and the fact that Jesus is described as the begotten of the Father means he is God just as much as God the Father is God. So, begotten speaks more of relationship than it does to a point of origin. And it tells us that Jesus is not created, no, rather, he is begotten, he is God the only begotten Son of the Father. Well, I hope that's helpful for you there. And I'm so glad that you could join us here on our YouTube live video. Again, I do want to apologize to anybody who's had difficulty today with the buffering. We're going to keep looking into it and doing the very best that we can. But let me tell you, I am so pleased that you could join us today. And I just simply want to say, God bless you. God willing, and if we live, I'll be back with you next Thursday. hopefully with a little better internet connection as I do a bit of work on that. And we just say, thank you for joining us. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.